0: Welcome to Teaching from Trinity, a weekly podcast from Trinity Lutheran Church in Rupert, Idaho. For the months of January through May, Reverend Dr. James Von Bush is leading this class exploring the book of Revelation. If you would like the handout to accompany this week's lesson, please visit our website, tlcrupert.com. You can find them on the virtual attendance page under the home tab. Thank you for listening. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for today, for your mercy is new every morning, your grace is abundant, and Father, you invite us into relationship with you again. And so you bestow upon us wonderful graces and your love, and help us to remember, even now as we look into the book of Revelation again, help us to remember that you are intimately involved in each one of our lives, in the lives of those around us, and you are also involved in the great picture of your church and what's happening in this world and what's happening in the eternal world. And Father, that's just too much for us to understand. And and so we ask, Lord, that you would help us to see you, to see Jesus. And so it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. And with that in mind, just a reminder, the book of Revelation is about Jesus. There's a whole lot going on and a whole lot being pictured and described for us in poetic and figurative terms. It requires faith and imagination, imagination guided by faith, but always realizing that this is about Jesus. And the opening verse, in the opening chapter, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. And in his grace, he is revealing to his servants what must soon take place. Jesus didn't owe any of us anything. He didn't owe us an explanation. He doesn't have to tell us what's happened, what's happening, what's going to happen. Everything in here is to be received as grace. That God is giving us something that is completely undeserved. And to keep in mind of who this is written to, the servants of Jesus Christ. So it will make even less sense to those who are not his servants. But because he has given it to his servants, he's also going to give us some understanding in it as well. And that's what we're looking for and hoping that in this context, we see Jesus more clearly. We understand a little bit more about what's important to him and what he's been doing, what he is doing, and what he will continue to do. So my opening question, how far will God go to bring people to repentance? How far will God go to bring people to repentance? Think about this in your own context, personal context for a minute. If something's really important to you, how far will you go to make it happen? How much would you invest? What would you risk? What would you, what would you do if it was something really important to you? How far would you go? Are there limits to what you would do? Would you get to a point where you'd say, ah, it's too much. not going any further. Now, there's some things in life that you really don't want to begin, right? You don't even want to (laughs) start. It's like, can I avoid that? But if it's something important to you, what would you do to make it happen? The follow-up question to that is, is it worth it? if you're in this context, if you're thinking how far would you go, how much would you invest, what would you do, what would you risk, is it worth it? And we'll have that question pop up in our own endeavors from time to time, when we've something's been really important to us and we've invested in it, we've been giving to it, and we've been trying to make it happen, and then we realize, you know, there is a pretty significant cost to this. This is pretty hard. This is maybe harder than we thought it was going to be. It's going to cost us more than we thought it would cost us. It's going to require more time than we thought it would require. It's going to hurt a little more than we thought it would hurt. And then we start to question, is it worth it? Is it really worth it? I thought it was really important. I was going to go all the way with this. And now I'm not so sure. And so we start to question, is it worth it? I look at that question from a different perspective and how far will he go to get us to come to him? And he'll, he can take us to the point where we break. We just can't do anymore. I think now that's the question, right? I mean, how far will God go to call us? How far will he go to get us back? How far will he go to bring us to repentance? That is the critical question. And it's an important question for understanding the book of Revelation. How far will God go to bring us to repentance, to bring us to faith in his Son, Jesus Christ, for the things that he has done, the work that he has accomplished and what he's doing now? How far will he go? We'll look at that, and in our own mind, we'll make our decision about how far am I willing to go to accomplish something. The question is, how far will God go and... It will sometimes be a rough road. And I think that's what you were hint, you yeah. know, going there with, Mal is how far will God go? More than we can endure. Yeah, so it's a combination. The question is how far will God go, but how far will he bring us? What will he do in our lives to bring us to that point of repentance? How important is your repentance to God? That's the question that you brought us to, Mel. How important is your repentance to God, how important is your neighbor's repentance to God? How important is your family member's repentance to God? How important? How do you, how do you think? Right? That's the question. And is it worth it? Is their repentance, is their coming to faith in Jesus Christ, worth how much? Jesus Christ died on the cross for it. So I think He would say it's worth dying for right? Not to be flippant, right? We would have that cliche, but it's a true cliche. For Jesus, how important was it? Is it worth it? He, would, he died for it. For your repentance, for everybody else's repentance. If we were saying God is intimately involved in each one of our lives, he's also looking at the big picture. He died on the cross for every soul, and he said, it's worth it. How far would God go? But also, as you pointed out for us, then how far will he go to make that real in a person's life, to bring them to that point of repentance? That's why he died. That's what he died for is your salvation. How far will he go to bring a person into that salvation? And is there a limit? Is there a limit? Well, let's look into the book of Revelation and see. Because when we look in the book of Revelation, It is not about calculating dates. We've said this several times. The book of Revelation is not some revealing to people to say, this is when you know Jesus is coming back. That is not what the book of Revelation is about. It's not saying look at the numbers and calculate the time on the calendar when we think Jesus is going to return. But we all know that that's been done. There's been effort and time and you know, full timelines written up and all kinds of calculations and every time they come up with a new one that date comes and goes and they were wrong. Right? Cuz that's not what the book of Revelation is for. It's not intended to give us a date on a calendar or calculate a number of days. And therefore it's also not about false hopes. The book of Revelation is not about false hopes. It's about real hope, real comfort, real encouragement. It's not about a church being raptured out of persecution. It's about the reason we're experiencing persecution and what it's for. And if Jesus Christ would go to the cross and die, shed his blood, give his life to save your soul we can as his people expect that we also will be invited to or expected of to invest to suffer to give our lives for the salvation of others so it's not about a false hope to get us out of persecution it's a, an explanation of why you're going to experience persecution if jesus christ was hated by the world you'll be hated by the world if jesus christ suffered to give grace We will suffer to give grace. If Jesus Christ suffered for forgiveness, then we also will suffer in the proclamation of forgiveness. And so it's not about calculating days. It's not about false hopes. It's not about escaping persecution. It's about really joining with Jesus, being partners in the gospel for the proclamation of his truth that brings people to repentance. Law and gospel for the salvation of souls. That's what we need to remember in this revelation. So remember these things. We're going to go back to even our early, early weeks of this. We're in week 16 today, but want to just recover a few things, go over a few things. The book of Revelation is written to the church. We need to keep that in mind, that the book of Revelation is written to the church, to God's people, Therefore, the people of God, His church, need to be um, in the mindset of what God is doing. And we know that by understanding all of the Scripture He's given us up until the book of Revelation. We need to look in the the Old Testament books as well as the Gospels and some of the other epistles to understand what's now happening and being described for us. Because all those books, all that information is written to God's people, the church. Now, specifically, as you recall, seven churches. Seven churches were mentioned in the opening chapters of the book of Revelation. But we also recognize that that number seven means divine completeness, and this is the entire body of Christ is who's being given this great gift. So universally, it is the whole church The church in all times and in all places. Which also helps us keep in mind some of our interpretation of what's happening in the book of Revelation. When John wrote this to these seven churches and then the other churches in the area and the entire church, it had to make sense to them. It had to be relevant to them. Otherwise, what kind of God is it that's giving them this information? It's going to be important information for the people who received it as John gave it to them and every generation after them to today and ongoing until Christ returns. So we have to keep that in mind. It has to be relevant to all of God's people in all times and all places. We, in our myopic sense, as Americans living in this culture that we have here, I mean, I can remember. This is clear as day for me. I hope it shocks you. I was in middle school and the Sunday school teacher asked, who are God's chosen people? And we, of course, you know, we were middle schoolers. We didn't know much at that time and we were taking some guesses. And he said, it's the American people. (laughs) What? (laughs) Even then I was like, I don't think that's right. (laughs) I think we need to look in the Bible to find out who the chosen people of God are. All of God's people. In all places and all times are his chosen people. Peter tells us that you are part of a royal priesthood, a chosen nation. God's people. And so, you know, this is who's the whole church. It's all times, all places. And the book of Revelation emphasizes that for us. That when we see in the book of Revelation references to God's people in the church, it's all of God's people. From all times and all places. Prior to Christ and after Christ, all of God's people. The book of Revelation has a two-fold purpose, really. It's just these two. The first purpose is the exalted reign of Christ. The book of Revelation, as we've emphasized over and over again, is a book of Christology, understanding who Jesus is. Much fuller sense than even what we can recognize from the four Gospels because the four Gospels focused on Christ, on his time during his time on earth. The book of Revelation expands our understanding and view of who Christ is, bigger and more than we could ever imagine. He is the omnipotent, omniscient God, sovereign over all. And so it is the exalted reign of Christ. Important for us as his church to remember that we don't serve a defeated savior. We serve a victorious Savior. We serve a ruling king. I think sometimes church members start to cower and shrink and live in fear, even though we serve an almighty Savior, the risen king. And so I think the book of Revelation helps us recognize who he is and therefore who we are. As his servants. The book of Revelation is written so that the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, that's us. We are servants of the risen Savior. And the second purpose, therefore, is the church and her mission. Clearly revealed to us in the book of Revelation is the church's mission. And it is given to us by Jesus himself. Just like he, when, when he ascended into heaven and he says the disciples are gathered around here, all authority... Now, our minds will immediately jump to the book of Revelation now from this point forward. When Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Wow! That will be mind-blowing every time we hear that phrase. When we consider the authority that has been given to Christ. He's the only one who could open the seals. He's the only one who could open the scroll. He's the only one who has the keys. He's the only one. And so our mind will just, and it will give us comfort and strength, drive out fear when we recognize the lamb that was slain, the almighty and victorious Christ is my Savior, my good shepherd the one who loves me infinitely and loves you infinitely. So our minds will go there. And then, because of that, he says, and I've got a mission for you. Go and make disciples of all nations. No small task. How far will he go? How far will Jesus go to bring people from all nations into his kingdom? And so he says to his disciples, including you and me, Go and make disciples. That is the mission. So, the book of Revelation has a unique perspective. It's written to the church, a twofold purpose, and a unique perspective. In fact, the book of Revelation might be the most evangelistic book of the Bible. It might be one of the most confusing, but it is maybe quite possibly. One of the most evangelistic books. I'll get that right, the right syllable. Evangelistic. Salvation history from the perspective of heaven. Now, it's woven in through all of the books of the Bible, the salvation story from heaven. In fact, in Genesis chapter 49 and 50, the conclusion of Joseph's story with his brothers who sold him into slavery and really wanted to kill him, but then he ends up in Potiphar's house, framed by Potiphar's wife, ends up in the dungeon, then is second only to Pharaoh in Egypt, and what does he say to his brothers? You meant evil, but God meant it to save. He meant it for salvation. And not only for salvation of all these people, but salvation for you, the ones who wanted to kill me. And so we see these glimpses of salvation history throughout all of the scriptures. And it's a capstone. I mean, it's full on in the book of Revelation. It's all about salvation and from the perspective of heaven. It includes the past, sorry, past, present, and future. And a lot of present. Sure, it talks about what Christ has already accomplished. It talks about what Christ is going to do in the future. But mostly what we see in the book of Revelation is what Jesus is doing right now. Right now. To bring people to repentance. Repentance. It is ongoing and continuous, is the idea here. Even as God introduces himself, can't grow weary of saying this, he introduces himself as the God who was, the God who is, and the God who is to come. He is actively, ongoing, and continuously doing things in us and in our world. This unique perspective is that it describes judgment and salvation. Judgment and salvation. In close proximity, sometimes in the same moments, in the same story, but with some stark contrast. And in our civilized mindset and wanting to believe that God would never judge anyone we think well that can't be it that can't be what he means we've got to give it a kinder gentler approach to it That then we are we are actually speaking falsely about god in this book he says and then we can look throughout the scriptures and see oh yes it's always side by side judgment and salvation law and grace together And it utilizes imagery and figurative language and poetry. I think one of the reasons God does this, one, is because it's just too big, right? How are you going to describe heaven in some kind of, as soon as you put it into words, you can find it. But I think also he does this to remind us of how puny we are. And the significant calling he has for us. So both and. Really, I mean really, in the scope of things, I think we'd agree we're pretty small. And yet God calls us to be part of the biggest thing ever. The salvation of souls. He encourages us to walk by faith. Walk by faith. We want to see it. We want to have it explained to us. We want to be able to understand it. Then we'll believe it. Oh, wait. Belief is out of the equation if you can understand it, if you can know it, if you can do it. So then it doesn't require faith anymore. I think one of the reasons God does it this way in the book of Revelation is to remind us that we walk by faith. We walk by faith until that moment when we are in His literal presence, and then we won't need faith anymore. But for this time, walking by faith is super important. It's how the church lives in relationship with the Savior. And so, this is very different than our Western way of thinking. The figurative language, the imagination, The walking by faith, we want it explained to us. And God says, I don't know, maybe he has a little little fun with this. Sure, I'll explain it to you. Here you go. Have fun with that one. But I think, again, it's really about walking by faith. Let's talk about numbers for a minute, because we get introduced to some new numbers in this section of the book of Revelation. So I think it's important for us to remember that numbers are also figurative. We'll hear about 42 months, 1,260 days, 3.5 years. Somebody already knows the answer. They're all the same. 42 months is three and a half years is 1,260 days. They're really all the same length of time. So we must ask why wouldn't God just say the same one every time is he trying to confuse us well I think maybe it's part of that idea of trying to prevent us from calculating out a specific day just reminding us that whether it's three and a half years or 1260 days it's still his time that we're talking about it's in his time and then we have just to make it even more confusing We have three and a half, the same number, but now it's days. In the scope of everything that's happening in the book of Revelation, is it really going to be boiled down to three and a half days? So what's the point there? And then we get this last phrase, doesn't even use numbers, time, times, and half a time. Well, time throughout the scripture is usually referring to one time, Times, plural, is two times, and then you have a half of time, and you're already there. You've done the math. It's three and a half again. Three and a half. So all of these numbers that I'm giving you here are for a specific purpose. Before I give you that answer, I want to remind you when we talked last week about the number five being half of ten. So ten is complete, finished. Five means incomplete. Incomplete unfinished. When we talk about three and a half, in any of these versions, whether it's 42 months, days, years, time, times, and half a time, it's half of seven. Seven is God's divine perfection. 3.5 in any context is broken. That's what it means. Every time one of these numbers is listed out, it's referring to something that's broken. Half of seven. Seven divine perfection. Now we have something broken. So keep that in mind as we go through it. Because what we'll see is when we hear these numbers referenced for us, it's going to refer to things like man's rebellion or our unrepentant hearts, pride. Or the persecution that is being, you know, coming upon the church. And ultimately, broken relationships. So when we hear this idea of brokenness, that's where we want to see what God is referring to in these verses, and these chapters, is there's something broken. What's he talking about? What's the brokenness being identified? Because ultimately, from the beginning, once Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, we're all broken. And most importantly, our relationship with God is broken, severed. And he's been working towards restoration and reconciliation ever since. Now, when we talk about brokenness, even that gets a little bit challenging for us. Because here's how the progression typically goes with brokenness. We can see it in the garden and we can see it everywhere around us. The first thing we do when we recognize our brokenness is we hide it. We don't want anybody else to see our brokenness and so we put quite a bit of energy and emphasis into hiding our brokenness keeping our brokenness internal and in the shadows and not letting anybody else see it but quite often that brokenness gets exposed so what's the next thing we do we blame somebody else for it we blame somebody else for our brokenness and then what happens after that is, this, well, it's in the open now, so I'm going to go ahead and be in the open with it. No reason to hide it anymore, so I'll just live however I want to live, and I'll actually put my brokenness on display. And after that, we start to approve of brokenness. And Paul talks about this. He says, not only are you doing it, but you approve of those who are doing it. Maybe you're not doing it yourself, but you say, oh, it's okay we tolerate, we put up with, we say it's okay, it's just them, it's who they are. And so we approve of brokenness. What's the problem with that is each step of the way we move people further away from repentance. As soon as we tell somebody your brokenness is okay, we have sealed the deal and said you don't need a savior. You don't have anything that needs to be forgiven and they won't hear the need for a Savior, and they won't turn in faith to Christ. And what did we just say? The whole point of what God is doing here is to bring people to repentance. How far will he go? And yet then, sometimes, well-intentioned, well-meaning people, even his people, will say, that's okay. That's okay. It's just who you are. It's just, you know, And we approve. And then the next step is to enjoy brokenness. Now, tell me that that's not real. To enjoy it, to enjoy brokenness. That is where it ends up. And when people are in that state, how will they hear their need for a Savior? How will they understand that because of their brokenness, Christ died on the cross? They'll say, I don't need forgiven. It's okay. God just has to accept me the way I am. In fact, I don't need God. Fred? You just explained the whole situation of the world today. In less than five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Explain the whole situation of the world in less than five minutes. Ouch thanks for <laughs> and all time all times yes this is not just now week historically this is throughout history and it you know it doesn't take a whole lot to see this pattern flow all like i said it started in the garden started in the garden and has not changed ever since except except where the gospel has penetrated where the gospel is victorious in people's lives, it changes. So just a quick summary of the fifth trumpet. Just want to remind you where we are here. The first woe. Remember that eagle flies across and says, here are three woes coming up. Trumpets five, six, and seven. And so the first one is smoke and locust scorpions. Remember it's that kind of combination of locusts and scorpions, once again, proving that this is, unearthly it is something supernatural and it's for torment the locust scorpion and the smoke that darkened the skies and blocked the Sun was to torment people that's why they were released when that fifth trumpet was sounded they were released from the bottomless pit to torment people specifically not kill them but to torment them, to bring them to repentance—that is the divine judgment, bringing them to repentance. The sixth trumpet, the second woe. When we get to this point, I'm going to read verse uh, from chapter nine, verses 13 to 19. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. You guys got to pause, right, just to make the point. This is of refer- reference to the altar in the temple had horns on it, four horns, one on each corner. And now the horns are speaking. It's figurative, imaginary. So what are we going to... We our, our minds and our hearts need to go immediately to what took place on the altar in the temple. Sacrifices for sin. The animal's blood was shed and the animal was killed for the sacrifice to be made for sins so that people could be atoned for and forgiven. And now that altar, the four horns of that altar, are speaking, declaring a message. So we have to keep that in mind. So the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had a trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. It's a big number. I heard the number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses in their mouths and in their tails... Now wait a minute. Is that right, horse girl? <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. But it wasn't whacking you with your head. It says it's coming out of their mouth. I always thought the power of the horses was in their legs and hooves. Am I? Am I? Mistaken? I know I grew up in Chicago, but, you know, it, Oh, I guess they could, right? Okay, especially if you're lions, if you're the head of the horse is a lion. Yeah. So for the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, of their sorceries, or their uh, sexual immorality, or their thefts. So the first thing we see here, the four angels that the trumpet calls to is the entire cavalry. John says, this is a huge number. Twice 10,000 times 10,000. It's a huge number. It's the entire cavalry. 10, right? 10, 10, 10. In fact, I didn't do the math on this, but I read in one of the commentaries, it's 10 to the eighth power. It's a lot of 10s. Very complete. It's the entire cavalry being sent out on mounted horseback as a military force. This is a big deal. They've been released with the sounding of the trumpet. The trumpets are the signals. This is a wartime imagery. And they've been released says, they've been prepared ahead of time, made ready for this exact moment in time, for this task that they've been given, and when the trumpet sounds, they are released to go into battle, to charge into battle, horses with lions' heads and tails like serpents. The picture I get here, besides the lion heads and the serpents, right? the picture I get here is the old fox hunt. And you've got the hounds, and you've got the horseback riders, and as soon as the signal, the trumpet is blown, it's, release the hounds! And off they go to chase down that little innocent fox that's been raiding the hen house. <laughs> isn't, I know, isn't that something? Yeah. <laughs> But that's the idea, really, is they've been there, waiting, (coughs) ready for this exact moment for the trumpet to sound, and as soon as the trumpet is sounded, military advance. The entire force. Take a note of the breastplates, because obviously they're described for us in some detail. Three colors are identified. Simply, it's red, blue, and yellow, the three primary colors. Red, blue, and yellow. Wet red represents fire. Blue represents smoke. And yellow, the odor of sulfur. So we got fire, smoke, and sulfur. What do you get? Sounds like hell to me. Well, there you go, (laughs) right on Yellowstone National Park. When the caldera explodes, then we've got it. So that's what it is. It's the threat of hell. The breastplates that these riders are wearing, hell is coming. The threat of judgment and the fire, smoke, and sulfur. We talked about the horses already, lion's head and snake tails. And the power is in the mouth and the tail. What's it to do? It kills. It destroys. That's what these horses have been sent to do with a mission. The fourth thing is to judge. It's to judge. Let me read to you from Genesis chapter 2 to give the backdrop for this important statement in the book of Revelation. Revelation. Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Grace, undeserved gift. Eat from every tree in the garden. But here's the law. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat it, for in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. The law with the consequence. Now understand, in that context, that's what God says to all of mankind, to Adam in the garden. You disobey, you break the relationship, and death is the outcome. Very clear. The mission with these four angels and the entire Calvary is to judge. Repent. Or die. That's the mission. Repent or die. So will they give that one third another one more chance to repent? What we and thanks for bringing that up again. Last week we talked about the one third aspect, especially in the first four trumpets, because every one is a one third of this and one third of that. One third of that, I think it's mentioned eight or nine or ten times. I forget. One third. Well, three. Three is the number for the triune God. And so it's a partial judgment. One third means partial judgment. So we're not looking at second chances. What we're saying is, what the book of Revelation is indicating for us, is that God is sending this with this trumpet out. It is a mission. And there's a partial judgment taking place here. That's why it's the threat of hell. There's more to come. Does that help? Yeah, okay, thanks for that clarifying question. Uh-huh. Um, so you had said earlier that uh, the revelation is about past, present, mostly present, and future. And our, my brain goes to this happens on a day in the future. haven't seen it yet. But is this an example of something that has, is happening, and will happen right now? I mean, really. the, the correct, I mean the simple, I'm not going to say correct. Okay. The simple answer is yes. Okay. It has happened. It is happening and it will continue to happen because every time somebody dies separated from God, they're separated from him forever. Okay. That's so the... Not necessarily this big event that's going to happen and. In- And at that point, we recognize what happens. And then we can repent. Right, I think that's where we're headed. Oh, we just saw this whole, you know, horses with lion's heads. That'll get your attention, right? Okay, now we just saw a third of the population die. Okay, now I'm going to repent. But what did we read at the end? They didn't repent. They continued in their brokenness and they rebelled against God continually. So, to answer your question, Cindy, is this something that has happened, is happening, or is going to happen? The answer is yes. Because every time a soul departs not trusting in Christ for salvation, they're condemned. Can I and say something? Sure. We had This was like two days before, and I looked at him and I said, okay, honey, have you asked the Lord if you can come to heaven? I said, you need to ask him. Don't ask me, ask him, and two days later, he was there. So evidently, the Lord decided he would bring him home. Well, here's the important thing to keep in mind, Lucille, and I, I, I know you find great comfort in that moment, and that's a great gift to receive. Here's the thing as when we're trusting in Christ, so we've been given great gifts in our baptism, forgiveness and faith and and adoption into God's family. We have been confirmed in the faith, teaching us what exactly it is that we believe and what God has done for us and has in store for us in the future. And then he says, live each day by faith, because you never know when your last day is. And that's the—I think—that's the point of even the book of Revelation—is live each day trusting in Christ, because the temptation is going to be to trust in something else. And that's what I love about your story, Lucille, when you say to Ed, "Are you trusting in Jesus?" (laughs) And and that's the—that's the real emphasis there. Yeah, I'm sure it did. Yes. So, mankind. The unredeemed is who we're talking about there in those last couple of verses I read for you, verses 20 and 21. Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of all people. He said, "It is finished." The forgiveness of all people have been atoned for. What we also understand is that is received through faith and can be rejected. It can be rejected. God's grace can be rejected. We know it. I just read it from Genesis chapter 2. God gave grace to Adam, and he rejected it. So at any point in time, we can reject God's grace until the day we're called home. And so the unredeemed are those who say, I don't care. I can see the judgment of God. People are going to hell every day. That's sobering. People who die having rejected God's grace and forgiveness go to hell. There's no other way to say it. And he says, and people continue to, re- to be unrepentant. They continue to put their trust in false gods and they continue to live broken lives. They refused to repent. That's that next fill in the blank. If you're still taking notes... They refused to repent. From 2 Peter chapter 3. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, Peter says, Beloved in in both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. He's saying to the believers, I'm stirring up your mind. I'm reminding you of something, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So as he writes this letter to the believers, he's saying, remember what all the prophets taught? Remember what the Old Testament said? And remember what we, the apostles, have been teaching you? Remember all these things. Knowing that first of all, the scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? When is he going to return? We've been waiting a long time. And he still hasn't shown up. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Just seasons come and go, year after year, decade after decade, generation after generation. For then Peter says about the scoffers, they deliberately overlook this fact. They are unrepentant and they choose to to, uh, overlook something. That the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. So he keeps his word. That's the point there. God speaks, and it happens. And that by means of these, the world that then existed, the waters, was deluged in water with water, that, and the whole world perished. But by the same word of God, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. And God said it, and he will do it being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So even with that information they refuse to repent. They remain true to their idols. They refuse to repent and remain true to their idols. Which of course we've already talked about with the seals were all kinds of false religions. But what else might we want to include in this list? We might want to include intellect, intelligence. Intelligence is a common idol. I'm so smart. Thanks for laughing. Remain true to their idols, modern culture. We've come so far, haven't we? We've progressed so far. Oh, wait a minute. Somebody said earlier we're doing the same things they did in the generations thousands of years ago. There's nothing new under the sun is what King Solomon would say. And so we continue. But we think our modern culture is so far advanced. We, uh, we put our faith in it. We remain true to that idol. And then the last one I have here for us to consider is we are civilized people. I don't know, if you watched the news lately? <laughs> Are we really all that civilized? The point is that we remain true to these idols, and none of them can save. None of them can save. I think it comes back, right back down to mm, anything that takes the place of God in our life is our idol. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, that's the first commandment. Mm-hmm. And we overlook it all the time. We don't think that we don't. I had this and even beautiful car that's the you know a $500,000 vehicle fresh off the lot totally electric and that's now my idol. Sure. And it can be anything. It I mean like you thing. said anything that takes a place of God in our life. That's why the first commandment is fear, love and trust God above all else. Yeah, I mean food, naps, I mean yeah. we can put all those kinds anything. We could find a way to devise and put anything in that spot. He goes, so here's the thing. Even in those, so first it was the false idols, and then he wraps it up with, and it's thieving and murdering, and we all already know we can do that in our hearts. We can lust and thieve and murder and never raise a finger. We can do it all in our hearts. And it's interesting that when people talk about religion, there's that idea of, you know, There's lots of paths and trails up the mountain. You can take any one of those paths, any one of those religions, and they'll get you all to the same place. And yet we know the scriptures are clear that is not the case. There is only one name by which we can be saved, and that's Jesus. Now, in contrast to that, keep that same motif of the mountain for a minute. There are any number of paths up that mountain. It could be, intellect it could be possessions it could be skill sets it could be and what's at the top of that mountain ourselves yeah. we can take any number of pathways to worship ourselves and idol and make ourselves our own God but there's only one path to Jesus to heaven so interesting right ironic how that's but that's, uh, that's not exactly, was in my notes, but that was, we won't charge extra for that one. <laughs> all right, let's, so again, these are all false, they cannot save, and yet people continue to, to put their trust in them. The angel and a little scroll, chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in, I mean, there's a lot of activity going on here. Angels here and there and doing all kinds of things and blowing trumpets and waiting to ride out on horses. And and now we have this one, another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand. Notice this one is already open. The first scroll was closed and only Jesus could open it. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Don't. Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel, when I saw... The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. All right. So this angel... What a picture. This is a powerful, it says, mighty angel. And where does he stand? One foot on the sea, one foot on the land. It's a message for the entire world. This message in this open little scroll is for the entire world. He stands, and the actual word there, and I have it written for you, he hollers, he says with a loud voice, and you have all this seven thunders and all this roaring lion. He's hollering is the word that is used in this text. So he stands there with one foot on the sea, one foot on the land, and he hollers and he swears an oath to who? The Almighty God. The one who lives forever, the one who created everything and all that is in it. He swears an oath to fulfill a promise. And then as John is getting ready to write down some things, he is told not to, because some things are kept hidden. God doesn't play with all his take cards on the table. He is fully trustworthy. He is completely honest, but he doesn't tell us everything. Thanks be to God. Yeah. Yeah, yes. He does not tell us everything. And here's a perfect moment where John is I mean he's been told over and over again write these things down, write these things down, write these things down. Don't write this one down. You have to wait for God to finally complete it. So some things God keeps hidden. We aren't supposed to know. We're told in the Old Testament his ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts are so much greater than our thoughts. And so he doesn't tell us everything. And for the person who kind of demands, no, God should tell me everything, he must tell me everything, I'm not going to believe him or trust him until he tells me everything, is a fool. And you cannot live by faith if you've been told everything. Well, right. Yeah, I mean, we always think this. And that's what Satan's temptation in the garden was to Adam and Eve. He says, God's holding out on you. He hasn't told you everything. And their answer should have been, you're right. He hasn't told me everything. He's told me what I need to know. And I'm going to trust him. And I'm going to trust in his wisdom. I'm going to trust in his love. I'm going to trust in his grace. I'm going to trust him. But instead, the serpent was able to get in there and say, don't trust him. Don't trust his love. Don't trust his faithfulness. Don't trust him telling the truth. He's not going to kill you. You won't die if you do if you disobey. Common theme. Yeah, Beth? You know, and it's hard because we have humans in our lives who don't tell us everything, and we're supposed to trust them too, and then they fail. <laughs> You're exactly right, Beth. <laughs> and so it our broken, back to the numbers even, but our brokenness in our relationship with one another certainly impacts our brokenness in our relationship with God. And we we superimpose back onto God the way we've been treated by other humans. And then we want to say, I don't trust them. So God, how do you expect me to trust you if you're not not sharing everything with me? That's a great point, Beth, and it becomes an obstacle to faith. I want to know everything... I want control. Oh, wait, that's another one of those paths right up the mountaintop to get to me, myself, and I. So, the message... And this is a hard one, right? But right here, blatantly for us, God is saying, you don't get to know everything. The message, what is the message? Verses 8 through 11. Then the voice that I had heard from the heavens spoke to me again, saying go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. I just love to see that scene. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, right? And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten, my stomach was made bitter, and I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So what is this message, this open and little scroll? I'd like to remind us of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus, calling to him a child, put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This little scroll that John says to the mighty angel, give it to me. Well, because God, of course, told him to do that. Go ahead and be brave and courageous if you're doing what God told you to do. But he says, here, give me the scroll. And he receives it with a childlike faith. He receives it. The angel says, here, you're going to take it. You're going to take it in. That's the first fill in the blank. You're going to take it in. Take it and eat it. All of it. Receive it. Internalize it. That's the picture here. When the angel says, take this scroll and eat it, It's part of you now You've taken it in It is both bitter and sweet This little scroll is law and gospel It is bitter To have our brokenness and our sins pointed out And the judgment we deserve is bitter So bitter It is hard to swallow It is hard to swallow but the grace and forgiveness of God is so sweet, so sweet. And then John is told, speak it to everyone. This command that the angel gives to John after he has eaten that scroll, speak it to everyone. The command means tell everyone, tell everyone. And it also reveals the desire of God that none would perish. Tell everyone from all languages and kingdoms and all over this planet, because that's where the angel is standing, foot on the sea, foot on the land. This message is for everybody. Tell it to everyone so that none would perish. And these two witnesses, if you can believe it, I'm going to finish that up in our remaining two minutes. Verses 11, I mean, yeah, verses 1 through 14 of chapter 11. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. These are the redeemed. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. This is the entire population of the kingdom of God, his people. And what do we know? The gospels tell us that only if you have the Holy Spirit can you say Christ is Lord. This is the redeemed. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb whenever, wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits of God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless not because of their own works, but the works of Christ has made them righteous. Then I saw another, flying, uh, another angel flying directly overhead, with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language. And I am reading the wrong chapter. That's why I was, I've been studying this, so I was like, that sounds really fresh. It was so good. I'm going to go back to chapter 11. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. That's judgment. That's the picture of judgment. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. So obviously our minds are going to Elijah the prophet who sealed it didn't rain for three and a half years by his prophecy. You have Moses asking for plagues in Egypt which is why many people think the two witnesses are Elijah and Moses. We'll come back to that in a minute. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. Now that's Jerusalem. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in the tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God will, emerge, will enter them. And they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. So, like I said, now I just used up a couple extra minutes. Um, There's going to be more that gets unpacked about these two witnesses in next week and the week to come but just a few things to note here this idea of measurement he gives John a measuring rod to go measure the city but we're never given the measurement we're never told what it does other than this it separates you heard he says you you measure this part and you separate it from the other part there is a distinct separation that's what this measurement is about this idea of legal testimony and this is what we're going to wrap up with today. From Deuteronomy chapter 17 verse 6, we are told, this is what the word that God gives to the people, you need two witnesses. Two witnesses to settle a matter. And here we have two witnesses. This is legal testimony is what Jesus is describing for us in the book of Revelation, legal testimony. And we have two witnesses. We even saw that at Jesus' trial. They said, we need to have some witnesses. We even found a couple of witnesses who said we heard this thing. But then Jesus answers it all when he says, listen, I'll just tell you, I am. And that's where we'll close. Father in heaven, thanks for today. Thanks for your, your grace and love. And Father, help us to recognize, even within ourselves, there are things that have happened to us and in our lives that make it hard for us to trust you. And so we ask, Lord, that you would show us your faithfulness and help us to live by faith in you, that you would also help us to see the mission that you have given to us that is much greater than us, but we have the Holy Spirit. And so it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.